It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with Ben Valster and Diana O'Carroll. Hello. This week is the last of our summer special shows where we bring you some of the finest science from all over the world. We're sitting in for Chris and Co for the last time because they'll be back next week. So today we're going deep underwater for a roundup of some marine science. We'll be finding out what corals can teach us about history, how trawl fishing can permanently alter the seabed, and how female hormones in the water are feminizing fish. So what I mean when I say feminized is that these males were starting to produce egg proteins and in the more severe cases they were developing eggs. We'll also find out why ponds are good for locking away carbon and how you can use a penguin's distinctive chest feathers to tell its life story. African penguins carry a spot pattern on their chest and like humans have unique fingerprints, African penguins have unique chest prints so we can tell which penguin is where when. And in kitchen science, Ben and Dave will be testing out their chocolate teapot to see if they're really as useless as people say. All this coming up on today's Naked Scientists, so do keep your questions and comments coming in to us by email at chris at the naked the naked scientist podcast powered by uk fast the uk's best hosting provider on the web at ukfast.net now amongst the many important marine studies going on in the world's oceans today is an initiative called traces which stands for the transatlantic coral ecosystem study It's an international effort to look at unique types of coral that live, in some cases, thousands of metres down in the ocean. Why they're important is that they represent a unique ecosystem on the ocean floor, but they also harbour a much more powerful secret, and that's because locked away inside the reefs formed by these corals is a chemical calendar, which could allow scientists to reconstruct Earth's climate over the last two million years. Murray Roberts is a marine biologist with the Scottish Association of Marine Science. He's been involved with setting up the Traces project to look for these corals. These are so-called cold-water corals or deep-sea corals, so these are a different animal to those that you'd find in tropical shallow-water areas. They don't, they're not reliant on sunlight, not directly anyway, and they're found in deep, cold, dark waters. They're huge developments of these uh, coral reefs off Norway, Scandinavia, and their distribution extends down off Britain and Ireland, and then right across the Atlantic with patches on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge to the American side of the Atlantic off Florida and the Carolinas and then around into the Gulf of Mexico even. If they live down there, they're not photosynthetic. How do they survive? They're surviving on the food that's produced in the surface layers of the ocean by uh, plant plankton. So that plant plankton captures energy from the sunlight, just as plants do anywhere. Uh, Animal plankton will consume that. Some of the corals seem well adapted to take that animal plankton and eat it. They're predatory. And others seem quite well adapted to take the remains of the plants that are brought down from the surface. So there has to be a critical link between a productive layer in the ocean and a, a, a physical mechanism in the, in the sea that gets that and transports it down with fast water currents to the seabed where the corals live. So they're doing a pretty good and pretty important job of actually translating material which is up in the top of the ocean into biomass material which is fixed at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, they are. And what they do in that process is lay down a skeleton. The coral forms a skeleton and it makes a reef, a framework. That forms a reef and that's effectively uh, a, a, a sub, an underwater city, if you like, uh, with high-rise developments where many other species can find a niche and can find a place to live. So when we look at the numbers of species that live in these areas, they're amazingly high. And in, even in, in areas of the Atlantic that we've studied for the last 150 years, we go out to sample the these areas and find many species that have never been described before. How deep are they down then? 
It depends where you are. Uh, their distribution tracks certain types of seawater, certain characteristics of the seawater, but they can be anything from 200 metres down to 1,000 metres, typically. How big are the individual coral I want to say structures. The, the structures they form can grow very large. So off Scandinavia, they may grow uh, to extend up to 13 kilometers in length and grow off the sea floor several meters in height. Uh, in other places, in deeper waters, we have evidence that coral structures have grown right back through time. And so they'll grow, uh, form a reef structure that traps sands and muds. And in glacial times, the corals will die back and other kinds of uh, sediments come in. But then corals start growing again, and this process repeats and repeats and repeats all the way back over one and a half to two million years. And those structures can be hundreds of metres in height. And Brendan Rourke, you, you've been working on these corals. How far back in time do they go, if, if we've got it right? The carbonate structures that Murray was talking about can go back uh, two million years. Individual species or individual specimens we've shown uh, with some of the protonaceous corals from the Pacific have lifespans of upwards of 2,000 to 4,000 years. Given it's that long-lived, what else can it tell us about the environment it's growing in? Well, as Murray was talking about, the linkages from the surface ocean to the deep ocean are recorded in some of the different types of skeletons of the deep-sea corals. You have basically two different kinds of skeletons made by deep-sea corals. One is a protonaceous horn-like material, and those are the long-lived organisms typically. That skeleton can record what's going on in the surface ocean. In other words, it's deriving all of its carbon from recently exported particulate matter from the surface ocean. You contrast that with the more typical carbonate skeletons that corals deposit. Those are recording the ambient conditions of uh, where the coral is living. It's a bit like tree rings then, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly like tree rings. Most of the corals have growth bands. So you've got this really powerful high-resolution coral clock which is tracking back what's going on chemically in the ocean for thousands of years. How far could you take that back, though? Because a big problem with climate change and ocean temperature models and things is that we're stuck in the near term since we've been recording things, aren't we? By collecting dead specimens as well, we have, with the gold corals, continuous records overlapping the same way you would with tree rings going back 5,000 years. And we have a few specimens that are as old as 10,000 years. What about on the longer time scale, though? You, you said these corals live thousands of years and they may even be millions of years in terms of the time they've been growing where they are. So can you go back literally millions of years? Yes, you can go back millions of years with the drilling in the carbonate mountains. And Murray, how are you setting about to try and study and, and improve our understanding of these corals? What we're trying to do is set up a transatlantic coral ecosystem study. And the idea here is to firstly unify the research right across the Atlantic so that we take advantage of the very exciting place we are right now after 10 or 15 years of work understanding where the habitats are and mapping them. Uh, we're able to go to places within the Atlantic Ocean and find carbonate mounds, cold water coral reefs, the kind of species that Brendan has been talking about, and sample them and bring them into a large study to look at that climate history right across the Atlantic. But also we want to tackle other questions as well. We know they're diverse ecosystems, thousand species just in the Northeast Atlantic, a number that keeps going up with more and more studies. But we've not yet tried to compare that diversity across the Atlantic to understand where these species are found. We haven't tried to compare right across the Atlantic how they're connected genetically. Do we have one area that is the source of the larvae that then disperse across the Atlantic, or 
are they growing in certain areas in isolation from one another? These are the kinds of questions you can only approach on a big scale. And also, to take the most advantage of the expensive resources that are needed for this work, we want to share that internationally. So that if, for the sake of argument, a German ship goes to sea, then we're able to take American and Canadian scientists along so they can get the samples that they need. Equally, when an American ship goes to sea, we want to see European scientists working uh, uh, alongside. So we get the most uh, benefit from the, from the investment that we're making here. And when are we going to see a return on the investment, do you think? The project starts now, uh, and we have our first sea going planned in October. We want to keep this going uh, for four to five years. So we think that within about three to four years we'll have our initial results, and then, of course, as, as with any project like this, the writing period and the analysis period will begin, and we'll see the, the big results coming out in, in about five years from now, we hope. That was Murray Roberts from the Scottish Association for Marine Science and Brendan Rourke from Texas A&M University explaining to Chris how corals are not just a sign of a healthy marine ecosystem, but they also teach us a great deal about the history of the oceans. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. We've all heard the phrase, as useless as a chocolate teapot. But is there any basis to this? Well, of course there is. We know that chocolate will melt, and a melty teapot is the last thing you need. But what about a really thick chocolate teapot? For this week's Kitchen Science, Ben and Dave set out to answer the question, how useless is a chocolate teapot? Well, to be honest, I have absolutely no idea how useful a chocolate teapot is. So in the best traditions of kitchen science, I thought we'd try some experiments to find out. Well, before we get started with our chocolate-based experiments, could you tell me, and now I think I can guess, but why is it that a chocolate teapot would be so useless? Well, the reason why chocolate is so nice to eat is that its point at which it melts is very similar to the temperature of your mouth, so it should melt in your mouth. So if you're going to put boiling water into it, it should melt really quickly and just collapse. So I guess what we need to find out is how thick the walls of the chocolate teapot need to be in order to not melt through by the time the tea's brewed. How are we going to find this out? We could just make lots of chocolate teapots, but that would take ages and use a really ridiculous amount of chocolate. So instead, what I've got is a whole series of tubes with different amounts of chocolate in the bottom of each one. I'm going to pour boiling water over them and see how long they take to melt. So the tubes aren't actually sealed at the bottom, there's just a plug of chocolate in there of different thicknesses. And in theory, at least one of these thicknesses of chocolate should stay solid long enough to brew a cup of tea. Well, because I've got no idea how thick this has got to be, I've gone for a very wide range of different thicknesses of chocolate, from about 10 millimetres up to about 80 millimetres, so one of those ought to survive the brewing time. And uh, it looks to me like you've chosen to go for dark chocolate. Why have you chosen that over, say, milk or white chocolate? Well, milk chocolate's got a lot of milk fat in it, and milk fat's got a lower melting temperature than cocoa fat. So dark chocolate ought to melt at a higher temperature, so it ought to be slightly better than milk chocolate for this purposes. So you've given ourselves the best chance just by using dark chocolate? That was my plan, yes. OK, so I guess the first thing we need to do in that case is boil a kettle and pour some water into each of these tubes. I'll go and get that kettle. So while Dave goes to get the kettle, I'm just going to have a look at these tubes of chocolate. And they are just plastic tubes open at both ends with a thick plug of chocolate. Now, I don't think these are going to last very long when we pour boiling water in. And here comes Dave now with a steaming hot kettle, so we can try it out. So, Dave, are you going to put them in in any particular order? Well, I figured I'd start on the thickest plug of chocolate first, because that should last the longest, so it's probably fairest to start with that one. And I'll try and put about the same amount of water on top of each one, roughly, so it's a fair test. 
So there isn't a different weight of water that could just push the plug of chocolate out? Yeah, that's the idea. So what is it about chocolate? I know lots of people enjoy eating it, and I certainly won't complain, but what is it that gives it that melt-in-the-mouth property? Well, basically just the fats in the cocoa butter happen to have a melting point, which is very similar, just a bit below your mouth temperature, so it will melt in your mouth. So what else is in chocolate? I know you've already mentioned cocoa fats and milk fats, but surely there's more to it than that. Well, a good quality dark chocolate is basically just cocoa fat, um, some cocoa solids, which are the things which aren't fat from a cocoa bean, and lots of sugar. If you're getting into a milk chocolate, then that's got a lot of milk fats in it as well. And in Britain, they tend to add some vegetable oils as well, which the people in the continent don't really believe makes it proper chocolate. OK, so what about white chocolate? Well, I think that's got the cocoa butter in it, the cocoa fats, but with much less cocoa solids, so that it hasn't got the dark colour. OK, well, there's just been a bit of activity with these tubes. The tube with the thinnest plug of chocolate in has just dropped some chocolate onto the floor and emptied itself. In fact, that's really not a very pleasant thing to watch, the way it's just oozing chocolate into a dollop on the floor. Dave, how long did that take? Well, that seems to have been about four minutes, which is not bad for only a 10 millimetre piece of chocolate. It's a lot better than you'd expect, really. And four minutes is actually about as long as you need to brew a cup of tea. Indeed. So maybe chocolate is a better teapot material than we'd first thought. So now that we know that a thickness of chocolate, which is only about 10 mil or so, about a centimetre, should be thick enough to make a teapot out of, shall we make a teapot? Yeah, I think so. We'll probably make one with rather thicker walls than that because a teapot's quite a lot bigger than the 40 millimetre tubes we're using. So maybe we'll go for about a 20 millimetre wall and see what happens. Excellent. And I do like my tea quite strong, so it would be good to be able to brew it for that little bit longer. So how are we going to make a teapot? Well, my plan is to basically take a bowl, fill it with chocolate, and then put a second bowl inside it to make it the hole to put the tea in, and then let that set, and then drill a hole in and add a spout. How on earth are you going to make the spout? Well, my plan is to get a tube of greaseproof paper, kind of splodge as much chocolate as I can around that, maybe with another layer of greaseproof paper to hold that chocolate in, let that set, and then kind of saw it up a bit and make it approximately circular, and glue it onto the front of the bowl which we've already made. This doesn't sound a particularly scientific approach, Dave. Are you sure this is appropriate for kitchen science? Well, if it's going to be a teapot, it has to look like a teapot, doesn't it? So we can't make a chocolate bowl and see how useful that is. So we've got to make it with a spout and ideally a handle as well and see what happens. Dave and I are now going to go into his kitchen and make ourselves a chocolate teapot. We'll come back to you later on in the show to let you know how good it was at brewing some tea. So keep listening to see if they enjoyed their chocolate teapot tea party or just ended up with a sticky mess to clean up. Now, the marine world is a very sensitive one, and as a result, it's easily influenced by our activities. So to make us see just how much our activities are affecting this environment, a team of scientists at the University of Hawaii have put together a global map showing the most affected areas. Here's Mira talking to Kimberly Selko. Well, we tried to gather as many global-scale, high-resolution data sets that covered any type of human activity that influences the marine ecosystem. And we tried to put it all together in a single format so that we could compare them all and lay them all on top of each other and see what the total impact is on the global oceans. And so how many impacts did you look at? In total, we found 17 data sets. Um, We had an original list of 34 different stressors that result from human activities. And, you know, half of these did not have any global scale data on them. We don't know where these things are going on. But for 17, we did find suitable data. And I guess of those 17, did you find out which ones had the most impact? Yes, we can 
always have to come up with a way to rank them, and the way that we used um, had to do with their impact. And in that case, sea temperature rise was having the largest impact in the most areas of the ocean. But that means there are areas that have greater impacts locally. And how about fishing? Because that's usually quite a big cause. It is a big cause, but we divided fishing into five different commercial categories and also artisanal fishing as a sixth category. We didn't look at the six categories as a sum. We only looked at them individually, and individually they did not have such a large effect compared to the climate change effects. Okay, so you've put all this stuff together, but what what did that show on the map? What areas were the most affected? Um, There was a large area off of the East China Sea and the South China Sea and also the northern part of the North Sea stretching into the North Atlantic. What are the main impacts, do you think, affecting those areas? The sea temperature rise was very great in, for instance, the North Sea area. And also there are many types of fishing and very heavy shipping. Shipping had a major impact that we were surprised by in our model, even compared to fishing. So now you've got this map and you've got this information, but what do you want to do with it? What are the aims of the map? Well, there are a lot of different things that can be done. It's really a tool to be used by scientists to answer new questions about the spatial patterns that we have generated by human activities in the oceans. It can be used by educators and to spread the word about how badly impacted the oceans are. And we also see specific uses for policymakers in order to figure out who needs to coordinate to solve some of these problems of multiple uses that are having large impacts. So what kind of effects are these impacts having on the marine ecosystem? What's happening to the life there? The general impact is that it's affecting biodiversity, it's affecting how nutrients are cycled. Um, So in the worst-case scenario, when there are too many activities for too long, an ecosystem can entirely collapse, and that means it just shifts into a different state altogether where the species change, the diversity is low, the nutrients cycle in a new way, and often in a way that's not as useful for human society. If this map helps people realize the different impacts having these effects, would it be possible to reverse? Yeah, I think one of the hopeful things about our project is that it provides for the first time a map of where different activities are happening. And with that information, we can make smarter decisions about how to manage our oceans. And so we can continue using the oceans and hopefully in a way that will maximize the benefit while minimizing the impact. And that was Kimberly Selko from the University of Hawaii explaining to Mira how different factors affect the marine ecosystem in different ways and has allowed her to map out the areas where we have the most impact. Hopefully this will lead to better management of marine areas in the future. As we've heard, there's a whole host of human activities influencing the marine environment. A main player in this area is fishing, and one particular method, trawl fishing, can cause damage that not only wipes out entire marine communities, but that damage can't be undone for hundreds of years. Most prone to this damage are the species that live in burrows, tubes that extend into the seabed. Although less glamorous than the fish, turtles and whales, these species are vital for a healthy marine ecosystem. Les Watling, also from the University of Hawaii, spoke to Mira about what we can do to prevent this from happening. Well, trawling is a method of catching fish that actually started in Britain in the 14th century, where someone found out that you could, if you took a net and held it open some way and hauled it behind a boat, you could get a lot of fish, but you also get a lot of other stuff. 
I've actually been looking at uh, effects of fishing for about 15 years, and I've been in submarines, and I've had cameras on remote vehicles. What I generally see is that when an area has been trawled, there's not much living on the surface of the ocean floor. We know that trawls also dig into the sediment. They disrupt all kinds of things. So generally, if you go to an area that's trawled, it's really, really noticeable. When the boats are going by, what effect is the trawling having on the seabed? Usually what happens is anything that's standing up from the bottom, anything like a sponge or coral or something that's growing up from the bottom, that's usually bent over, broken, or removed. Uh, If it's a muddy bottom, then the gear digs into the bottom. And the important thing here is to realize that most of the animals that live in the muddy bottom live in the upper three or four centimeters. So you don't have to dig in very far before you've disrupted the burrows and tubes of all these small things. Okay, so they've been disrupted, but then what's the impact of that? What effect does that have? It depends. Some animals recover from this disruption okay, which means they can make a new burrow or tube. But a lot of animals that invest, they invest a huge amount of energy into making a tube. In fact, some cases, some of the marine worms, for example, they've lost the ability to remake a tube. So then that's it. Then they are laying on the surface and they could be eaten by a fish or any other thing that comes along. So they've lost their protection, as it were. Other animals raise their young in their burrows and tubes, and if that's destroyed, then the babies may not be able to burrow their way out of this mud that's been stirred up. So we tend to see species in these trawled areas that have really high reproduction. They're weeds, in the best sense of the word. They have high reproduction. They can recolonize. They're capable of getting their house blown down, if you want to think of it that way, and rebuild it real fast, all that sort of stuff. So you tend to lose the things that have a longer, more stable lifestyle, especially if it's an area that's trawled repeatedly. If a person drags a trawl over an area once, then a lot of things will survive that. Maybe half of the things that live there will survive that. And there will be a certain amount of recolonization that could occur in future years. But a lot of times trawling occurs over and over again in particular areas. Fishermen have their favorite spots. And when you go to those areas, you find that the whole bottom community has really changed to these weedy-type species, which is, you know, from a fish perspective, might not be so bad because a lot of fish tend to eat those weedy species too. So you could get, uh, like flatfishes, for example... It's been shown in the North Sea that if you retrawl areas a lot, you can get flatfishes, but you might not get other kinds of fishes because their food is missing. You create a completely different bottom community and, and, and a new ecosystem, as it were. One parallel that I like to use is what happens when you go in and, as happened in North America, for example, colonists came, they cut down all the forest, and they turned it into pasture land. So you lost all of the birds that nested in the trees. So it's a very similar kind of thing. The community is still productive because now you're growing sheep or cattle or whatever, but you have lost a lot of the biodiversity that was there. How much of the world's marine ecosystem is being affected by trawling? Well, that's a hard estimate to make. We uh, looked at the number of fishing vessels and where they were around the world uh, about 10 years ago, And we figured that about half of the continental shelves of the world get trawled each year. That number is obviously fluctuating because fisheries have collapsed in a lot of these areas. And it may be the collapse of some of these continental shelf fisheries that will allow some of this biodiversity to recover. So what do you think the solution is? What can we now aim to do knowing this? 
Well, this is going to be a little controversial. <laughs> but, um, you know, people have been proposing for a number of years now to set aside marine protected areas that you don't go into with any kind of gear. And these areas are generally been proposed to be about 20 or 30 percent of the continental shelf area around the world. We should be looking at it the other way around, that we should protect most of the sea bottom and allow trawls into only a very small percentage. And I guess if that does happen, do you think that the effects that trawling has had so far is reversible? It's reversible. The timescales are going to be long the deeper you go in the sea. I have a project that we just finished looking at an area that had been close to trawling for six years. And it doesn't look at all anything like the areas that have never been trawled. So that's six years on. If you go into really deep water, we know on the seamounts, for example, that corals recruit at extremely low rates. We had a study where we were looking for coral recruits on the seamounts in the North Atlantic, and we found one (laughs) on a block that had been put out that had been out there for a year and a half. So I guess if fishing can be reduced, the outlook is quite promising and it's not something that's just going to be left disturbed. Promising in the long run, yeah. For the continental shelves, uh, for areas that have rocky, stony, marl bottoms, those we're looking at 25 to 50 years probably for a recovery time before the big things like sponges start to regrow. Uh, The deeper you go, though, the longer. I'm certain that... Seamounts that have had all the corals removed from the top will not have corals again for a century or two centuries. This is a really long time. It is worrying that it takes so little to damage an ecosystem that will take centuries to recover. Les Watling there from the University of Hawaii. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and Diana O'Carroll. We're sitting in for Chris and the gang while they're off enjoying their summer holidays. And we're bringing you the finest science from our travels around the world. And don't forget that we beam this programme live into Second Life from 6pm UK time, which is 10am Second Life time. That's a great group there who discuss the science of the show. So if you would like to join them, visit the Scilands and then search for the Naked Scientists. You can drop by our mansion, relax on one of our sun lounges and listen to the show. And while you're online, why not tell us how we could make our show even better? We want to hear from you what you like or dislike about the show. So set up a survey at thenakedscientist.com forward slash survey. Still to come, Dave and I find out if a chocolate teapot really can be used to brew tea or just to make a mess. And Sarah Castor-Perry will be joining us to take on some of your science questions. But for now, most people have heard the claim that female hormones leaking into rivers through poor sewage treatment can cause male fish to switch sex. But does this actually make a big difference to their populations? Researchers from the University of New Brunswick in Canada have shown that adding female hormones to a lake over a period of three years does have a dramatic effect on the fish population. But there was also, they say, a very pronounced and unappreciated twist in this tale. Chris caught up with Karen Kidd, who ran the study. What we did was a whole lake experiment at the Experimental Lakes area in northwestern Ontario. We took the estrogen that's used in birth control pills and added it to the lake for several summers. And the reason that we did this study is because there was quite a bit of evidence coming out of the UK in the 1990s showing that male fish living downstream of municipal wastewater outfalls 
were becoming feminized. And so what I mean when I say feminized is that these males were starting to produce egg proteins, and in the more severe cases, they were developing eggs. And several follow-up studies had actually started to link this feminization in wild males to the presence of estrogens that women excrete naturally or the synthetic estrogen that women excrete when they're taking the birth control pill. So if you were already aware of that data, what were you hoping to learn by doing it in in a a sealed lake? Well, the big question that we wanted to answer with our study was the, so what does it mean for the fish populations to have feminized males? So can these males still successfully reproduce, or are we going to see a decline in their numbers? And when you did this, what was the outcome of putting the estrogen in the water? Well, right away, the males started to respond as we expected they would. So they started to produce egg proteins, and one species of fish started, the male started to develop eggs after the first summer. And so these kinds of feminization responses weren't surprising to us. In the second summer of additions, though, we had quite a surprising response in that the fathead minnow, this is a very common and short-lived species in North America, it stopped reproducing, and that led to a collapse in the fish population. So these fish don't live very long, which is why if they stop reproducing, their numbers are going to fall dramatically and quite quick. But what about if you look at fish that live much longer? Well, we looked at another longer-lived minnow species, the pearl dace, and their numbers did decline, but it did, they didn't decline quite as rapidly or as dramatically as for the fathead minnow. So, so that was telling us that, yes, the, the characteristics of the fish, the life histories of the fish, really affect how sensitive it is to these estrogens. So the ones that only re- reproduce once and then die off seem to be much more sensitive to estrogens than the ones that are longer lived and that reproduce several times over their life cycle. And what we also saw in our study that was quite a surprise was the impacts that the estrogen had on the longest-lived fish, the lake trout. And it seems that the lake trout weren't affected by the estrogens directly, but their numbers dropped in in the third year of our study because they lost their food supply. So when the fathead minnow population collapsed, the lake trout lost some of its prey, and that in turn led to a drop in their numbers. So, so this was pretty sobering to us because it showed that estrogens can affect fish populations directly and indirectly through the food chain. So in other words, by, by having a previously unrealized impact, by knocking down the populations and taking away a food supply, your estrogen is also affecting the fish in, a, in another way. That's right. That's right. It's an indirect effect of of this input of estrogens into our environment that we didn't expect to see in our whole lake experiment. I guess the key question is, I mean, we know that we're contaminating water downstream of sewage works and things, but if we were to clean up our act tomorrow, how long would the repercussions last for? Well, I think in our case, we saw the, the fathead minnow population recover in three summers. And so it does suggest that they can recover quite quickly. And certainly that's at the population level, but when you look at 
things like the egg protein production or the development of eggs, those kinds of responses in males would go away very rapidly after you remove the estrogen from the system. Of course, the other possibility is that we just tell women they're not allowed to take the pill anymore. <laughs> That's right. I've had that question before. So does this mean we should ban the use of the birth control pill? And, and the answer to that is no. Uh, we know 100 million women worldwide rely on the birth control pill. And the answer really is in better wastewater treatment and making sure that the wastewater is treated at least with secondary treatment. And that secondary treatment can remove those hormones relatively easily, and they also tend to disappear from the environment in a matter of days once the supply is shut off. So it's not all bad news. That was Karen Kidd from the University of New Brunswick in Canada talking to Chris. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. Everything we do these days, from driving our cars to eating our food, contributes to climate change, and it's not just the polar regions which are facing these effects. The microbial community play a vital role in our marine ecosystems, and these communities are being hit hard by the changes caused by our actions. Mira met David Carl from the University of Hawaii to find out more. Microorganisms are responsible for the planetary stability and planetary habitability. Marine microbes are responsible for uh, producing most of the oxygen in our atmosphere. They also are the food source for most of the marine food webs that lead up to fisheries and, and into humans. So they not only capture solar energy and convert that into food that uh, we have some great interest in, but they also are very important for the nutrient balance and uh, keep nutrients cycling in the ocean, nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen in particular. What aspects of climate change are you looking into that are affecting microbial activity? The climate change we're mostly interested in is the effect of climate on ocean conditions. This is everything from the temperature of the surface ocean to the ocean currents to the interaction of the ocean with the atmosphere. All of these uh, features set the condition for the environment, the habitat we call it, and it's the habitat conditions that decide uh, whether or not a particular group of microorganisms is selected for or against. The ocean habitat is the parameters that define its existence. That's everything from the chemistry of the habitat to the physics of the habitat to the microbes that live there. And as the habitat changes, so does the uh, population of microorganisms. For example, some microorganisms prefer to live in acid conditions, some microorganisms prefer to live in warm water conditions, and so on. And so what is the effect of climate change on the sea temperature and things like that? What's happening to the microbial community? We know, um, based on first principles, that as you change the ocean temperature, you will deselect for certain groups of microorganisms, you will increase the rates of metabolism, you may change the balance between the production of oxygen and the consumption of oxygen because these are different metabolic properties that have different kinetic constants and different organisms responsible for them. So as you change the environment, basically what you run the risk of doing is decoupling otherwise coupled cycles of nutrients and energy and dissolved gases in such a way that we change the conditions of our own planet in part because the atmosphere, which we rely on, has a very short turnover time and therefore a very rapid response time. So all you need is a slight perturbation in uh, gross fluxes of dissolved gases, for example, to have an impact on, on the atmosphere. If these changes were to happen that you've suggested, what are the larger scale repercussions of that? 
Well, the ultimate uh, repercussion would be to change the habitability of the planet by changing the oxygen budget of the atmosphere and, and therefore precluding forms of life that we're used to thinking about, like humankind. At some point in time, there will be a threshold level of oxygen below which we can't survive, and certainly other organisms can't survive either, or a threshold of carbon dioxide that we're building up very rapidly. These gases tend to be opposite in sign. Uh, oxygen is decreasing in the atmosphere while CO2 is increasing for the same reason, that we're burning fossil fuels, and that burning of the fossil fuel is consuming oxygen and producing CO2. Uh, these are not good effects for humans, so high CO2 is not good, low oxygen is not good, but high CO2 and low oxygen is even worse. The ultimate repercussion would be that uh, higher forms of life, like humans and, and other vertebrates, uh, would somehow have a very difficult time surviving. And how exactly are you monitoring this? Where are your stations and how are you actually looking into it? In terms of the atmosphere, there are probably a million atmospheric monitoring sites around the globe. In terms of the ocean, there are two, two uh, comprehensive measuring sites, one at Bermuda and one near the island of Hawaii. These are called ocean time series sites, and they're only two of a hopefully larger network that will be developed over the next couple decades to do the same thing that we're trying to do with climate modeling of the atmosphere. Uh, people are all familiar with weather forecasts, and if you think about a weather forecast, it is derived from uh, more than a million measurements that are being made simultaneously around the globe. We would eventually like to have an ocean forecast that would be not unlike the weather forecast, maybe even more predictable, uh, but it would take a million sites around the globe to do such a thing, probably even more than that because the ocean is much larger than the uh, than the terrestrial environment that where weather forecasts are focused. So we have a lot of work ahead, but it's something that's tractable to start building more observation sites around the globe or at least in sensitive regions of, of the planet. How much time do we have in order to actually try and sort this out to stop it becoming a very big problem? Well, I think we're already behind the timeline here. The climate has been changing radically since we've been able to start measuring it back in the early 50s when we had the CO2 measurement program started. We have now CO2 measuring programs at maybe 20 sites around the globe. And, you know, we really have to get going on this because uh, time is of the essence. One thing that might provide a little bit more time might be to find geoengineering solutions on the planet that would somehow either slow down the rate of CO2 increase or stop it altogether. And people have been thinking about different ways to do this, but any one of these geoengineering processes that we develop would have presumably intended as well as unintended consequences that we need to look at carefully before we adopt this wholesale. That was David Cull from the University of Hawaii explaining how the microbial community in the oceans has a dramatic effect on the world's climate. But the same may be true of the humble garden pond, as Kat Arney found out recently. We all know that trees can take up carbon from the atmosphere, helping to combat climate change. But there's another important place where carbon is taken up that you won't find on most diagrams of the carbon cycle, and that's ponds. I caught up with John Downing, Professor of Ecology at Iowa State University, who has just published results suggesting that ponds could play a vital role in damping down the greenhouse effect. I started by asking him what his results show. Actually, so the smallest aquatic systems are the most carbon active in the biosphere and are probably absorbing as much carbon as the global oceans. 
And how did you find this out, that they capture so much carbon? Uh, we measured uh, the deposits of carbon and how thick they were in various sediments, and we also measured the rate of deposition of those sediments in little constructed systems across the central part of the United States. What sort of things are these? Farm ponds, yeah. There's 76,000 square kilometers of farm ponds in the world, and they're, f- and they're burying carbon at about 2 kilos per square meter per year. Just a tremendous amount of carbon. Because they're so active, even though they're small, they're disproportionately important in the global carbon cycle. So what does this mean, for example, here in the UK? Should we all be going out digging ponds? It's not a bad idea, really. They're also very nice for recreation, marvelous for biodiversity. Uh, We are encouraging people in the United States to build more ponds. They trap a tremendous amount of carbon. And um, in some areas of the world, we've taken away a lot of these ponds. We've filled them in, we've destroyed them, we've drained them on purpose put them back and we're going to actually be able to have a positive uh, positive effect on the amount of greenhouse gas that goes off into the atmosphere. So we should be digging ponds rather than planting trees? Well, I wouldn't say rather than. I'd say build ponds and then plant trees around them. But they're, they're both good things to do. Professor Downing's research only relates to ponds in the US. But what about the situation in the UK? I spoke to Jeremy Biggs from the charity Pond Conservation to find out what the situation might be like over here across the pond. Well, we've just done some preliminary work looking at the effect of ponds in trapping carbon, and what we found so far is that they seem to be as good as John is suggesting over here as well. We've done some very preliminary surveys so far in the last couple of months or so, and we're capturing carbon at just about the same rate as he is in America. So that's a pretty exciting result for us because it suggests that they might work as carbon capture technique over here as well. So what does this mean for conservation policy and for climate change policy? Well, it suggests that there's another way of uh, mitigating the impacts of climate change by capturing carbon, taking it up in ponds. If we make ponds of the right size and shape and put them in the right kind of places, then we should have another method for trapping carbon just as we do with trees at the moment. If we do both those things, we will actually trap more carbon from the atmosphere and help to mitigate some of the adverse effects of climate change. That was our very own Dr Katz talking to Jeremy Biggs from Pond Conservation and before that, Professor John Downing from Iowa State University. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. At this year's Royal Society Summer Exhibition, there were a wide range of exhibitions on site, including a chance to become a penguin. Worldwide numbers of African penguins have fallen dramatically in the past few years, and Mira met Tilo Burkhardt to find out about a new system being developed at the University of Bristol. This new system allows scientists to track the whereabouts of penguins and monitor their daily activities to find out just why their numbers are falling. Well, what we do is we identify individual animals, in particular African penguins, by their coat pattern. So instead of banding or otherwise tagging animals, we use their natural coat pattern. In the case of African penguins, their plumage in order to identify them. African penguins carry a spot pattern on their chest, and like humans have unique fingerprints, African penguins have unique chest prints. And we've built a computer system that can identify, first of all, an African penguin in a video frame, and then extract the chest pattern and compare it to a database of the population, so we can tell which penguin is where, when. So you have me wearing this apron onto which a spot pattern has been printed, so what do I now do? Well, what you do is walk towards the camera, you better waddle actually, and then the camera will pick up, it's a simplified system of the real system out in the world, it will pick up on this spot pattern, it will extract it and will assign a name to it. So it can identify you as, well, an individual penguin. 
Okay, so I'm walking up now, and, and it's saying that I am Pandora. Yes, you're basically one of the penguins. Actually, in real life, we don't give names to them. It's rather numbers that identify them because you couldn't, you know, have thousands of names remembered. So we then assign a unique identifier. Like humans have names, they get numbers. So you're able to spot these penguins, but what's the benefit of being able to do this? Well, the main problem we try to solve here is finding out about the species. The reason for that is the species is an utter decline. And over the last few years, uh, about 50% loss in the population count has been found. I mean, if, just to give you some numbers, about 100 years ago, there have been more than 1.5 million African penguins, while last year's census gave only 35,000 breeding pairs, which is a really, really sharp decline. And we need to find out why. And with this technology, we can basically play big brother over the colony without being invasive. So you don't need to catch the animals or tag the animals anymore, which is basically interfering with their life. And with this technology, you then get out information about which penguin is where, when, so we can talk about foraging duration, how long are they out of the colony and to get the fish. We can talk about which penguins uh, walk together in groups. Do they have friendships? You can start asking entire new questions that you know, couldn't be asked before in the first place. So how does the actual technology work to recognize the patterns? Well, it is a computer vision system which does the following. The images are transmitted from the camera to the computer, and the first thing the computer has then to decide where in the frame, where in the image, are African penguins in near frontal poses, so basically penguins that show that chest pattern. Once the computer has figured out where they are in the image, then the computer has to extract the chest area and the spot pattern within. So once the chest pattern then is available, there's a final step to do, and that is the matching. Matching of this chest pattern, which is, as I said, very similar to human fingerprints, to a database of individuals that have already been identified, basically reciting the animal. And so if it doesn't come up in the database, it's obviously then a new penguin and you would just assign it a new number? Exactly. Where are you going to take this next? Are you going to expand it to other animals? Absolutely. I mean, so far we are monitoring colony on Robben Island. But first of all, there are three other species of penguin you can apply it to. And then on top of that, the technology has also been trialed on zebras. Basically anything stripy and spotty, more technically carrying Turing-like patterns, can be identified with the technology. So, for example, in a zebra, you have a stripe pattern. And what you do is you can turn this stripe pattern into a spot pattern by simply taking the bifurcation points and ending points of lines, uh, and then you have a spot pattern again. You do what we do with penguins. If you have a look at uh, different images of, um, well, different animals, different uh, zebras, you will find that, although they look very similar, the details of the stripe pattern are vastly different, and they again, can be used to identify them as individuals without tagging them. I have a wonderful image now of Mira in a penguin suit, but she donned that penguin suit to find out how modern technology can recognise an individual penguin from a video still and therefore help us understand more about how they live and how we can try and conserve them. And we're joined now by Sarah Castaperi, who will custode over a few of our questions. What have you got for us today, Sarah? Right, well, first of all, I've got a question from Sean Moore, and he says, When I go to bed drunk, I often find myself unusually warm in the night. Normally I get cold when I sleep, but when I'm drunk, I wake up at, say, 3am, all hot and bothered. What's up with that? So it wasn't just that he got so drunk he forgot to take his clothes off before he went to bed then. (laughs) Has that ever happened to you, Diana? 
Well, I did once wake up wearing a bow tie. I've no idea where it came from. <laughs> so, Sarah, why is it then? Why does he get too hot in bed after he's been drinking? Well, like you said, normally I get cold when I sleep, and that's quite common because your body temperature actually drops during the night, and it's usually at its coldest about two hours before you get up. But when you've been drinking, your liver is madly metabolising all the alcohol, breaking it down to get it out of your bloodstream. And this is a really exothermic process, which means that it produces a lot of heat. Now, your liver is actually the main heat-producing organ in your body anyway, so when it's working extra hard, you're producing a lot more heat than usual. But also, added to that, alcohol stops you from being able to thermoregulate properly. So, you know, when you're too hot and you sweat to cool down or when you're too cold, you shiver to warm up. The alcohol stops your body from being able to do that. So this, combined with much more heat being produced by your liver, really makes you heat up in the night. So it's a real double whammy, then. The actual breaking down the alcohol produces lots of more heat anyway... And the fact that there's alcohol there means your body can't cope with that excess heat. Yeah, exactly. Although you can actually see the opposite thing in um, people coming out of clubs late at night. I mean, I'm sure everyone's seen it or done it themselves. The sort of beer jacket effect where you come out in just, you know, a small T-shirt or something and you're not cold and it's because the alcohol makes you less able to feel the cold. So this is for when you've gone out and tried to avoid spending the extra pound to put your coat in the cloakroom so you just leave your coat at home. And actually at 3am you don't notice at all that you're losing using lots of heat. Yeah, exactly. I mean, usually it's absolutely fine, but it can be quite dangerous for people who live on the street and if they drink, then they might not notice that it's really cold, so it can be quite dangerous for them. Very interesting. Diana? A pound? I think it's about 170 nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a bit of an inflation since your time, Ben. Oh, yeah, it shows how long it's been since I went to a nightclub, I think. <laughs> I think so. Right, well, anyway, I've got another question here from Steve in Dubai, and he asks, does your body burn more energy trying to keep cool than it would trying to warm up? Right, well, I suppose this is kind of linked to what I was saying before about thermoregulating. Your body works best at a certain temperature around 37 degrees centigrade. So when your temperature goes above or below that, your body will try and reset it to its sort of level, this homeostasis. And so when you're too hot, you do things like you sweat to cool you down. And when you're cold, you shiver and things warm you up. And, I mean, the simple answer is that it takes a lot more energy to warm yourself up because to do that with the shivering, it's kind of like going to the gym. It's the really fast contracting of your muscles that causes you to shiver. So, you know, it's like going for a run or doing other sorts of exercise. And obviously that's going to take up a lot of energy. Whereas cooling yourself down through sweating is a much more passive process. It doesn't take that much energy from your body to pump the sweat out onto your skin. So the air is sort of doing the work for us to cool us down. So actually, as your sweat evaporates off your skin, that takes the heat away from you. So you're not having to actively remove the heat. Yes, exactly. But Steve is in Dubai. Now, surely the processes that people go through in Dubai can't be the same as here in the UK, where, let's face it, it's usually not very warm. (laughs) No, I think... Also, not just the heat, but the level of humidity in the air is quite important because if it's really humid, so there's lots of water already in the air, it's obviously going to be a lot harder for the moisture on your skin to evaporate. So you will always feel hotter when it's humid than when it's dry. So the same amount of sweating will actually lead to less cooling? Yes, because the air is already too full of water for it to take much more away from your skin. Very interesting. We've had another question here, this one from Carter. It's nothing to do with temperature or to do with drinking alcohol. This one's actually about blood. And he said we were discussing the ABO blood group system a little while ago and explained that A and B dominate type O. And you can read up about that on thenakedscientist.com. 
But he asked, what about the rhesus blood group system? So is there a dominant one for that? I know that I'm rhesus negative, but I don't know genetically what that means to me. How does the inheritance of rhesus typing work? Right, well, it's like you said, the A, B and O system for blood typing, rhesus blood typing is quite similar, but it's much more complicated. There's not just three types, it's actually a lot. But when people talk about rhesus positive or rhesus negative, they're talking about the rhesus D gene, and that means that you either have or do not have these particular structures on the outside of your red blood cells. So rhesus positive means that you do have them, and rhesus negative means that you don't have them. And he's exactly right that rhesus positive is dominant. The allele for that is dominant over the rhesus negative allele. And actually about 84% of the UK population is rhesus positive. Oh, right. So that again means that if you have two parents who are rhesus negative, then you're certainly going to be rhesus negative. But if your parents are rhesus positive, then actually you could turn out to be either. Yes. I mean, both of my parents are rhesus positive, but I'm rhesus negative, so... And that means we can work out that each of your parents has one copy of the gene saying rhesus positive and one saying rhesus negative in order to have passed on the negative ones to you. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for being our custodian of the questions over the last few weeks, Sarah. It's been a pleasure to have you. It's been a pleasure to be here. So thank you to Sarah Castaperi, who has been looking after your questions while Chris and co are away. Now let's get back to Ben and Dave to find out just how useful a chocolate teapot really is. Welcome back to the Naked Scientist's Chocolate Teapot Tea Party. Now, Dave, you've made yourself quite an impressive looking chocolate teapot here. Can you run through again how it was made? Well, I first got a stupid quantity of chocolate, about 1.3 kilograms of it. I then got a bowl filled it to the half full of chocolate and put a smaller bowl inside to make the gap to put the tea in. So that actually formed the bowl shape that's now the base of this teapot. Yeah. And then I made a tube of chocolate by getting a tube of greaseproof paper, sort of plastering with chocolate and putting more greaseproof paper around the outside, putting that in the fridge and setting it. So that's formed our spout. And how have you actually attached the two together? Uh, I basically just got molten chocolate and used it as a kind of glue and it welds the two together really nicely. Excellent one. Who'd have thought the chocolate would make a good welding material? And I can see also that you have a handle, although knowing that there's over a kilo of chocolate there, I'm not sure I'd trust it. No, I think the handle is there mostly for aesthetic purposes. (laughs) Well, I suppose it's not a teapot if it doesn't have a handle and a spout. So I guess the next thing to do is just find out if we can brew some tea. Indeed, I've got a couple of Earl Grey tea bags here. Lovely. Open the lid, put the tea bags in. There's plenty of space in there. We should get at least two cups of tea out of this. Hopefully, yep. And I'll turn on the kettle. Okay, now, I'm assuming nobody is going to try this out at home, but just in case they do decide to get industrious with chocolate and make themselves a chocolate teapot, what are we doing to make sure that we don't accidentally spill boiling water all over ourselves? We've put everything on a tray so there's something to catch the boiling water if this teapot doesn't quite work. How confident are you that it will work? We'll find out. Well, water's just gone off the boil, so let's pour it in and see what we can do. Well, it certainly hasn't melted through yet. I can see that you've even made a chocolate lid. Now, that looks very thin compared to the rest of the teapot, Dave. How confident are you that this lid is going to hold up? The lid is probably the lowest level of confidence I have, I'm afraid, (laughs) Ben. Well, with all that steam condensing on the underside of it, we shall have to see. So now I guess we just sit back for a few minutes and uh, let the tea brew for maybe three or four minutes? Yeah, on the instructions it said three to five minutes, so we've got to wait a couple of minutes and see what happens. (laughs) 
Well, it's already been two minutes since we poured the water in, but unfortunately we've had a bit of an incident with the lid. Uh, Dave, what's happening? Well, hot air and steam rise, the heat's coming up, then you've got hot steam condensing on the bottom of this chocolate lid, which is causing it to melt. So the lid was very, very thin. It was rather an afterthought. If you want to make a chocolate teapot at home, make the lid more than five or six millimetres thick. I think you're going to want the sort of 20 millimetres thick like the rest of the teapot. Well, you had very artistically included a handle on the top of the teapot, but that is now... uh... Definitely gone into our tea. Maybe we should stick to China for teapot lids. (laughs) Okay, so the lid has melted through a bit, but the main bowl seems to still be very intact. How does it feel on the outside? Does it feel warm? It still feels cold on the outside, so it seems to be working quite well as an insulator. Obviously, the chocolate on the inside is insulating the chocolate on the outside, so it's not melting. Now, obviously, we're going to pour this out through the spout, which isn't quite as thick as the main body. Do you see any problem with that? Hopefully, it's not going to be there for very long. It might work as well. Okay, well, I think it's now been pretty much long enough. We better pour this tea and and see if it's drinkable. And now for the moment of truth, we'll try and pour the tea out of the teapot. And the second cup. I am really, really impressed. The spout held firm. It does really look like tea as well. I expected it just to look like a chocolatey, murky mess. And inside the bowl, it's all clearly melted, but it's still pretty much bowl-shaped. It hasn't just become a puddle of chocolate. In fact, the only bit which has really melted badly is the lid, which is now sitting inside the bowl. But other than that, it looks pretty intact. I think what's going on is that although chocolate melts quite easily, when it's molten, it's still got some structural integrity. It doesn't actually slump too quickly of its own accord unless you actually push it or it's trying to support its own weight like the lid was. It tends to flow quite slowly if you try and pour it, even when it's melted. Yeah, it's very, very viscous. So I think the molten chocolate was just sort of sitting there and chocolate's made out of fat and fat's actually quite a good insulator. So the molten chocolate was insulating the unmolten chocolate outside so the outside still stayed solid and it didn't melt. So it's actually a layer of melted chocolate insulating the rest and this is why it didn't melt all the way through. And even though, I mean, this is quite a bit thicker than the test plug we used outside, it's actually done a very good job. Yeah, chocolate is obviously better than you'd expect for making teapots out of. I guess we'd better try the tea and see if it's any good. So, uh, cheers, Dave. Cheers, Ben. That's actually not too bad, you know. It, it does taste a lot sweeter than I'd usually have my tea, but it's still hot, it's perfectly palatable, and I think we've proved, actually, that you can make a teapot out of chocolate. Well, chocolate probably isn't ideal material for making teapots out of, but it's a lot better than you'd expect. OK, so now we have a slightly chocolatey cup of tea to enjoy, but it's really not too bad at all. And uh, and now we have to think of what to do with this large pile of now slightly steamy chocolate, which appears to have a tea bag melted into the middle. Any ideas, Dave? I can't possibly imagine, Ben. <laughs> I'm sure we'll find some way of getting rid of it. Um, well, that's it for Kitchen Science this week. We'll be back very soon. So surprisingly good, as long as you don't mind the mess and slightly chocolatey tea. I have to say, it was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't taste of tea, mostly. You can listen to that again and see the pictures of Dave's incredible chocolate teapot on thenakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for this week, and that's all for these summer special shows. But next week, join us for the start of the brand new series where Doctors Chris and Helen will be live in the studio with a show all about the Large Hadron Collider. It's due to be switched on on September the 10th, so we find out what it is that they're looking for inside atoms, how the LHC actually works, and what it will mean if they find something unexpected. 
So that's to come next week. But in the meantime, get your questions into chris at thenakedscientist.com and have a fantastic week. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.